Please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, starting at chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to start reading from verse 13 um, and then read through until the end of the next chapter. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. For, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But oppression and judgment he has taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
And our second reading to follow on from that is in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 from verse 18. Matthew chapter 1 from verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Smoky morning. It's good to be here nonetheless. It's good to welcome friends and visitors here too. Kids, last week I told you that it was the beginning of Advent and now we're in the second week and you're still at school, so sorry about that, but soon I think you will break up from school and you can, yeah, another week or so. And we're remembering, aren't we, at the time of Advent, the baby Jesus and why he came into the world. The incarnation of God, literally the enfleshment of God. God becomes one of us. That was planned since before the foundation of the whole world. And so can you imagine God is aching to come? He's aching, he's longing to come. And so he comes into the world. His world, the one he created, and he's born under the law which he proclaimed and was above that's a concept, isn't it? Christ was born under the law. How else would he be judged for our sin without a law? The world at Christmas has often forgotten what Christmas is all about, and so it's our job to remind them, and it's our job to remind one another. And what better passage could there be than Isaiah 53? Because it answers the question, some people in the past, and I'm going back centuries to the 5th century, the 4th century, referred to Isaiah 53 as the fifth gospel because that's what it is. <laughs> it's the gospel. It's clear, isn't it, from beginning to end. It's all about Christ. It's all about his death and his burial. I like to refer to it as the Old Testament crucifixion passage. Because that's what it is. Psalm 22 might be another one. Did you know that the New Testament makes reference to the Old Testament books? 35 books of it. Do 
you know that? It references 35 out of 40, 39 of the books in the Old Testament. It leaves four out. And the scholars say, well, it alludes to those. But I want to say this morning, Isaiah 53 makes reference to the New Testament. It appears in the New Testament quite a bit. It's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews, Titus, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter and 1 John. They've got almost the entire quotes through all of those quotes of Isaiah 53. Do you think it's significant? They thought it was. And it contains the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the intercession of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the coronation of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. Now you'll be pleased to know that they're not my points for the sermon, because we'll be here all day if that's the case. What's extraordinary is that that was written 680 years before Christ walked on the earth. And every one of those prophecies came true. It's staggering. It's a huge chapter. It's rich. It's prophecy. It's heavy. It's powerful. It's heartbreaking and it's uplifting at the same time. And it has to do with this baby Jesus. It has to do with this baby Jesus who's become a man. Now, as you probably appreciate, it's a big reading, and I can't go through it all. So I thought I'd work thematically in it and pick out a few things that hopefully will be helpful to us. But one quick thing I want to get out the way right, a, right away is who this passage refers to. I've already told you who it refers to, but some people think it doesn't. It might not surprise you to know that in most synagogues today, this chapter is not read. It's not read. That's partly because it's very clear who it points to in history. But it's also because the Israelites, the Jews, the modern Jews, believe it's about them. They believe that it's about Israel. And in one sense it is, but that's a failed Christ. It's a failed Messiah. Some people think it's about the prophet Isaiah himself, that he's talking about himself somehow. But of course we know differently. In fact, the New Testament makes it very, very clear. In Acts chapter 80, chapter 80, that would be an interesting story. In Acts chapter 8, verse 20 following, we hear the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? He's reading Isaiah 53. He's reading this very text. And he doesn't understand it. And Philip gets sent to him. And he says to the Ethiopian, do you understand this? He says, how can I if someone doesn't tell me what it means? And then he specifically says to Philip, who's he writing about? <laughs> Is he writing about himself? Is Isaiah writing about himself or someone else? And this is what the word says. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. If Philip knew what Isaiah 53 was about, he got it. It's all about the cross. 
It's all about God's glory. It's all about the gospel. And so I just want to draw us to three points that I think we can get out of this text to encourage us today. As I said, it's a very big text and we can't spend the the time doing the whole text, but just three points that I, I hope will encourage you. Point number one, Jesus is the one who stood in your place. Jesus is the one who stood in your place. Now we know the gospel. I'm delighted that there are churches in this town that proclaim the gospel week after week, and we here know it too. But sometimes we can become complacent or it can kind of be slightly dulled by repetition. But we know what it is. Do you know that Jesus stood in your place? Have a look with me first at verse 3. I'm going to move around this text and look at some others as we go. Verse 3 says that Jesus, the suffering servant, was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. A man who was acquainted with grief. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Jesus' sorrows and his griefs are ours. You might say, well, what are those sorrows? What are those griefs? Well, look around you at the world. Look around you at your flesh. Look around you at Satan. The world is full of sorrows. Full of sorrows. If we're honest, we can find joy in Christ. We can find hope in Christ. But we suffer. It's not an easy world to live in. This is not an easy body to live in. It is sinful. Jesus knows those griefs. If I sin against you, I cause you grief. Do you get that? Do you understand that? If you sin against me, it grieves me. It offends me. And so Jesus takes that sorrow to its final destination. See, the thing that weighs us down ultimately is sin. And so Christ stands in our place with my sorrow, with my sin, with my grief. And he says, I have that sorrow. I have that grief. And I'll stand in the place instead of you. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Jesus says, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the flesh. I've overcome the devil. He stood in our place. What are your griefs? What are your sorrows? I know some of you have many things to contend with. Some things that weigh you down heavily. Christ knows that sorrow. He knows that grief. Have a look at verse 5. He was pierced for our 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. Do you see the he and the us? Do you see the he standing in our place and the us receiving the benefit of that? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His wounds, his standing in our place heals us. Now we might look for earthly healing. We might want that, we might need that. But the ultimate healing is something different, isn't it? It's a healing from ourselves, a healing from our natures, a healing from the thing that drives us to be so selfish against God that we love ourselves. That's real freedom to get away from that. And that's what the cross does, only because Christ stands in our place. You see, that's the place that we should go, isn't it? We're sinful. We should be pierced for our sins. We should. We should be crushed for our iniquities. We should have the chastisement of the Father laid on us. But would that bring peace? No. Because we cannot stand there successfully. But without Christ, that's experience. We won't know peace. We won't know joy. We won't have hope. We have an eternal damnation in its place. That makes me shudder. Romans 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, that means sorrowful, heavy laden, grief stricken, full of sin, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, let me just change this slightly, Christ stood in our place. Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, well, much more then shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the gospel. This is what it is. We know it. Just remind yourself today. Say to yourself, Jesus, this baby who becomes a boy and a man, dies in my place. He stands where I should stand. How did he overcome the world? How did he overcome the flesh? The devil? Sin? He died. He died. So Jesus is the one who stood in our place. Point number two. Jesus is the one who is the righteous sacrifice. The righteous sacrifice. Have a look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, referring to Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. If I was to say to you now, 
What does the word righteous mean? What would you say? Give me some answers. Oh, hang on a minute. One at a time. To be made right. Yep. Declared right. Yep. Any more? Right standing with God. Sorry? Not guilty. That's the righteous picture that comes from Christ. But it doesn't work if he's not righteous. If he's not holy. If he's not good. If he's not God. Absolutely obedient. Then this cross doesn't work. The righteous one, his servant, stands in your place and is the sacrifice. He's the holy one. And the cross shows us that. Romans 1.16, I'm sure you all know it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power, God, power of God to save those who believe. The Jew first and also the Greek for in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed. When you get a look at the cross, you see the righteousness of God. You see justification. You see the payment. You see a God saying, yes, I'm holy, but I'm going to do this anyway for you, for your sorrows, for your griefs. And the result of that is that we get declared righteous the righteous one dies and covers our sin. So the father says, Sam's now righteous. Now you know as well as I do that I'm not. And I know as well as you do that you're not. But he declares us that way. He sees us that way because of the finished work of Christ. Christ's righteousness is given to us. And our sin is taken from us by him. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You've got to be in him. If you're not in him, you don't have the righteousness of God. Christ died on the cross, but you don't have it. You've got to be found in him. Romans 3.21 But now says Paul, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, has been shown to the world, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We're reading one of them now. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction because everyone's fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. And they're justified by his grace as a gift. That's what Christmas is about. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as the one to stand in your place. Do you see how it works? He says this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He passed over our sins, our former sins. How did that pass over happen? There was a new sacrifice. And that was Jesus. And his righteousness pays for it. We don't have time today, 
but you might, if you're making notes, jot down Philippians 3.9 and read through that again. So you could say, in a way, the thing that makes the cross work, the power, if you will, that pays for the sin, is the character of God being demolished. You could look at it that way. God is righteous, he's just, he's holy, he's blameless. He's never sinned. And he's dying for my sins and your sins. It's like his character, his righteousness is being besmirched. But extraordinarily, in that, he does something unique. He makes us righteous. He does pay for the law. That's one side of the payment, but there's another side. Just have a look back in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Did you see that? Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him with him, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. That's the question a lot of philosophers spend a lot of time asking this question, who am I? What am I? Well, you're a human being. Good. Well, what is a human being? Well, I've got flesh and blood. I've got eyes. I've got sinews. I have a life. I also have a spirit. I also have a soul. And God is spirit until the incarnation when he takes on flesh and blood, sinews, eyes. And he has a soul. It says here that he poured it out for our sins. He, as it were, paid for it with who he is. Let's put it the way it should be. He died. He died. It's not a joke. It's not a trick. It's not a swooning thing where he fainted and he came back to life in a quiet corner. He died. He was dead. He had a spear run through his heart. Water and blood came out. He gave up his soul by standing in this place. I don't know if you've ever noted, and it's just a footnote for us today, but that he was put through all of this by his father. See, not you or me. I mean, it's our sin we're not actually the ones killing him we're not the ones judging him how can we do that we're not above the law it's not satan it's not the pharisees although it might look like that it's not the romans although they're the ones playing it out for god it's the father i really want you to get this some people and i had this thought when i first became a christian they think well, you know, Jesus dies for our sin. It's some kind of very complex thing, and it is complex. It's also very simple. 
And when he dies, well, he goes to hell and he fights Satan. He resolves the problem that way. That's not what happens at all. Don't think that. What happens is that Jesus is on the cross, judged on the cross. Not in hell. He didn't go to hell. On the cross. It went dark for three hours. If you read the Old Testament, that's a picture of judgment. God judges his son on the cross. And at the end of that, do you know what Jesus says? He says, it's finished. It's finished. And I want to say, what's finished, Jesus? You're still alive. The judgment's finished. I've taken your sin and I've been judged by the Father for it instead of you. I've stood in your place. I'm the righteous one. I can do this. I've done it. And then because the wages of sin is death, he yields up his spirit into death. He pays for it with his spirit. But it is God, the Father, that judges his son. That changed my whole thinking about Christianity when I started to learn a bit about that. So Jesus is the one who stood in our place. He's the one who is the righteous sacrifice. And lastly, point three, Jesus is the one who is exalted, or at least he should be. What's the result of all this judgment? The result of the punishment, the sorrow, the grief, the death? What is the outworking of the cross for us? It's forgiveness. For us, it's peace. It's being truly reconciled to some of them that we were offended or had offended, we were enemies with. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. We've been ransomed. Think of all the words we know. Think of Wayne Sutton's The Character of the Cross series. It's all about that. The thing I want to focus on is the exaltation of Christ because that's something that comes out of the cross too. Did you see it? Right back at the beginning of our reading in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 it says, Behold my servant. He shall act wisely. In other words, he'll obey me. He'll go to the cross. He shall be high. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now I know that this refers to Christ being lifted up on the cross. But it also refers to Christ being lifted up beyond the cross. Verse 15, it says that kings will shut their mouths because of him. Why? Because he was resurrected. Because he didn't stay dead. That doesn't happen normally, does it? So he's exalted among the nations. His name will be praised. He will be given his rightful place, whether we like it or not, whether the world likes it or not. Jesus will be exalted. As I was reading through Isaiah 52 and 3, I don't know about you, but I heard lots of scripture coming through from the New Testament, some of which we've looked at. I heard a lot of Romans 9 and 10 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. But the one that kept coming back to me is Philippians chapter 2. 
verse 5. Let me read this to you. Paul says to us and to the Christians of the day, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is actually yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the very form, same substance, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. There's, there's Christmas, there's the incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Listen, even death on a cross, which is the curse of God. Go read Deuteronomy and find out how bad that is. But it doesn't end there. It says, therefore, God has, listen, highly exalted him. Well, how's he done that? Well, he's given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on, the, on earth and under the earth. So every knee and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen carefully. To the glory of God the Father. Wow, this, this, this incarnation, this man who is God standing in my place, the righteous one dying for my sin, is glorifying the Father by doing it. And so the Father says, I'm going to lift him up higher than all of you. This is my son. Look at him. He's exalted. We come here to worship him and to praise him for that reason, don't we? Amen. So I want to say to us today, and just bear with me, the baby Jesus, the incarnation, this Christmas, I've done it every year, grows and becomes a man. He becomes what he is, the Alpha, the Omega, the author and perfecter of your faith, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone, the deliverer, good shepherd, great high priest, the I am, the king of kings, the lamb of God, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Lord of all. He's the mediator. He's the Messiah. He's the mighty one. He's your hope and mine. He's our peace. He's the prophet. He's the Redeemer, Son of Man, Son of the Most High, Supreme Creator. He's the door. He's the way. He's the word. He is the true vine. He's truth itself. He's victorious. He's the, as we heard last week, he's the wonderful counselor. Can you finish it? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. That's amazing. Prince of Peace. And I say, why? Why is he those things? Because he's the resurrection and the life. Because he doesn't stay dead. He's God. And this Christmas, let's remember that. Let's remember that in amongst the prayers. Are the prayers? Yeah, hopefully there's prayers. The presence, the tree, whatever that is. 
the family and the food and the fun and the games. Let's remember his name. In our second reading in Matthew 1, we get the wonderful story about Joseph. And poor old Joseph, he doesn't get a lot in the New Testament, does he? He's sort of a a sideshow, but he's so important in this because he allows the marriage that, as it were, solemnizes the picture to go ahead. He doesn't put her away quietly, although that's kind of nice compared to what the law says should happen. But he doesn't get a big story after that. But actually, this bit I just find staggering because he gets to name Jesus. He gets to give Jesus his name. He's just a baby when he comes. And the angel, before that happens, tells him what he's got to call him. According to Isaiah, (laughs) according to the prophecy in the Old Testament, this is what you're going to call him. Don't worry, Joseph. It was the Holy Spirit. Don't put her away. Stick with us on this. And he gets to name his, not his son, but if you will, you bear with me on this, his stepson, not his biological son. And what does he name him? Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Well, the text tells us. For he will save his people from their sins. a great job to have to call Jesus who he really is so in closing then just got two questions for us just two do you believe in this Jesus that stood in your place and paid the price for your guilt with his soul, with his character, with who he is? If you don't, then today, please do. Paul says that today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not the next day. You do not ha- know what will happen when you leave here today. You've heard the gospel. If you don't know Christ, come to Christ. Come to him. Jesus says it. He says, come to me. Are you weak? Are you heavy laden? Are you full of sorrow and guilt? And grief? He says, come to me. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. He says, for whosoever will save their life will hang on to what they've got without God will lose it. And whosoever will lose it For my name's sake, Jesus says, whoever will die for me, who will live for me, for my name's sake and the gospel will find it. And he says then, do you know what he says? He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and gives up his soul? He says, I'm going to give up my soul for you. So come. Come. And how do you come? You confess. You confess who he is in a way you exalt him by confessing who he is. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for me. And what am I like in contrast? I'm nothing like that. I am a man of sorrows. I am a man of grief because I know what sin is. I know how heavy the world is. So, Jesus, forgive me. 
That's how you come to Christ. You don't have to do anything else but that. Isn't that good news? Just that bit. That you get peace. So do you believe in him? Question number two. If you do believe in him, and I know we, most of us at least do, if you do believe in him, are you exalting him? Are you giving him the place he deserves? Because he has the name above every name. And one day, you will bow. And Paul Washer has a phrase, which is, you will either bow in humble, obedient, fearful, loving submission, or you will have your knees broken. Everyone's going to bow before Christ. So how are you living? How's your life? Where's your prayer life at? Where's your Bible reading at? Are you trying to be holy, to be obedient? I know none of us will make it. Christ will solve that in the end. But are you engaged in the battle of trying to be holy? We're commanded to. Do you know that? And if we don't see those things, we need to ask ourselves, do I know Christ? Be broken. Be holy. Be confessional. Be repentant. Exalt Christ in your life because that's why you were created. That's the job we're given. Jesus is the one who stood in your place. Jesus is the one who is the righteous sacrifice. And Jesus is the one who is exalted for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your son is who he is. He is righteous. We thank you, Lord, that his obedience, even to death on the cross, displayed his righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that the cross shows us his righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that the cross works. It's not fake, Lord. It's not phony. Lord, I pray that if there's any of us here that don't know you, that they would turn now and come to know you. Father, for those that do know you, I pray that you would quicken our spirits to live a life worthy of the calling by which we have been called by you. In Jesus' name, amen.